This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. In the last um, throes of the mastering of free will, part of being a master of free will, which means a, a master chooser, which means being a masterful human being, because ultimately human beings are free will machines. You know, what you mostly do in your life is you make choices. That's what life's all about, is making choices. So we've been discussing how to be a masterful chooser, how to choose really effectively. And the ways we've come up with already, the ways we've discussed already, just put free will up here again. Free will mastery. The ways we've discussed already is constant. Number two is battleground. Sorry. Number two is reevaluation. Thanks to whoever cleaned the board. Reevaluation. Number three is a battleground. So number one is constant means to constantly choose. Like choose to be in Jerusalem right now, choose to be in this class, choose to be with me, choose to be with each other, choose your parents, choose your siblings, choose your children, choose what is. Stop resisting what is. Really choose what is and be in your be in your life. And as far as God's concerned, God's creating the world now. So stop waiting for some God experience. This is the God experience. Reevaluation just simply means that you have to be able to reevaluate your life to be someone who's like really got free will. You know, if you can't reevaluate your career or or uh, the city you live in or anything, uh, lifestyle, uh, Jewish observance, if you can't reevaluate that, well, then wherever you're at is you're stuck. If I can't reevaluate my level of Judaism. And, you know, have the option of reevaluating that and going less or more. So then I'm robotically in this mode here. So what makes your life more alive, where your free will is really coursing through your veins, is by reevaluating. Again, you don't have to make a shift. You just got to reevaluate. It takes tremendous courage to make a shift. But our job is to reevaluate. Okay? Number three is the battlegrounds. The battleground between the the soul and the body. Okay, and uh, as we said, the soul is um, is your spiritual um, highest values, and the body is just more base. Shares with the animal kingdom, survival, and reproduction. That's your body, and the. But you have to know you're on a battleground. You have to know this is the battle now. You may be in a battle right now, whether to pay attention or not. You may be in a battle right now of... Maybe you had a battle whether to come to class. Anyone had a battle whether to come in today or not? Anyone have a battle whether to get out of bed or not? I, <laughs> that was my battle. I woke up exactly when I said I would. But it was a battle to get out of bed. Um, these are little battles we have. If you want to ignore that you're in a battleground... I mean, who wants to live on a battleground? You know, I'd rather be in Palm Springs, personally. Who wants to say they're in a battle? On a battleground? No one! But if you want to ignore the fact that you're on a battleground, what's going to happen? You're going to lose. You're going to lose. <laughs> this isn't one of those things that you can, like, conveniently ignore. But how many people conveniently ignore it? Especially in the, if it feels good, do it generation. No one wants to say, I'm in a battle. Imagine, I just imagine all my secular friends and colleagues who today are all in all kinds of businesses and professions. I just can't imagine one of them, you know, in L.A. pulling up his, uh, pulling up in his fancy sports car and saying, I'm having a tremendous battle between, you know, between, you know, whether I should go to gym or go meet my wife on time or something, you know. You know, I think they might be having that battle, but they don't see themselves in ba- little battles all day long. But these are little battles that we have. Yeah. Isn't it the 
my experience. By the way, that was a lame example because I think everyone's having that battle. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, it's a good example, Rabbi. Okay, but because it's the, it's the life you've chosen and the life that they've chosen. <laughs> okay, you can say that. Wait, wait Sandy, I, let's not discuss my bad example or good example according to um, uh, Yitzchak. Sandy. My experience is that most people don't want to change. They want the status quo. Right. And life is always changing. And to some extent. And you can't... But there still is most people are afraid of change. And... Um, right. People are afraid of change. People are very change-resistant. Um, I kind of want to, since you're bringing up this issue of the fear of change, um, I think I should mention something. Which is another way of saying the battleground, but in a little nicer way. Right. The, I just want to talk about change for a minute. A lot of people feel they're afraid of change, but you're actually not afraid of change. If you won the lottery and suddenly won like a billion dollars, <laughs> your life would change a lot. Things would change a lot. You may think it wouldn't, but it would. Life would change a lot. If you suddenly were a billionaire, you know, and I mean, there would be like, once you gave the charities you wanted to give to and build the institution you want to build to, you'd still have another uh, $9,000 million. Um, right, a thousand million. You'd still have $900 million to figure out what to do with it. You understand? Things would change, you know. Um, I would have a condominium in Whistler Mountain for mountain biking in the summer and probably one on the north shore of Kauai for surfing in the winter. Those would be my two spots where I'd have second homes and I'd have probably four-wheel drive trucks to get to and fro. But uh, that would be after, of course, I gave lots of charity and stuff. To help build whatever needs building and stuff. Not to mention a feeding Africa. So can't most people somewhat do what they want to do anyway and not need that billion dollars? We're not talking about needing it. I'm just saying if you got it, life would change. And you wouldn't be too sad about it. Like this, uh, like this, uh, 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 let's take John for example. John, imagine you just won a a billion dollars in the lottery. Okay? Now, your life would change a lot. And uh, you're not from an observant family, are you? So you'd go back to your parents. You go back to your parents. You know, you come back from Israel with your billion dollars in your suitcase. And you know what your dad would say? He'd say, John, I'm so proud of you. I always knew you'd make it. You know, and your mom would say, your mom would say, that's my boy, you know, amazing. You know, and you're, your aunt would be like, can I touch you? And your your best friend would be, can we go out to lunch? Yeah. And they, everyone would be so happy about it. And you'd love every minute of all this new change going on in your life. Phone ringing off the hook, every banker, investor, everyone wants to help manage your money. You know, everyone wants to take you out to lunch also to get, you to get them uh, the job. Anyway, but when you win like the Jewish lottery, for example... You know, you come back from Israel, turbo Jew, you know, that, that kind of change, you know, and you come back with the cosmic dental floss or the, or the, what I call the instant nerd, you know, on your head. You know, your dad doesn't say, I always knew you'd make it, son. Your mom doesn't say, uh, I'm so proud of you. Yeah, your, your, your aunt, you know, can I touch you? No. Okay. You're, uh, your best friend, can we go out to lunch? I like Glot Hut. Glot Hut's delicious. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen. What happens instead is your father says, son, you better rethink this about a thousand times before you get involved in this level of observance Jewishly. And your mom says, what do you mean you're not going to eat in my kitchen? And your aunt says, what do you mean I can't touch you? And your best friend says, I don't like Glot Hut. What happened to our old restaurants? So what you start to realize is your issue isn't change. 
Your issue is losing the support of the people who've been supporting you, meaning emotionally. You hear that? We're not afraid of change. We're afraid of losing the people that we need in our lives. There are people that you need, and they need you, you need them. We all have we all have a world we live in where people are taking care of each other. And that's what we're afraid to lose. So we're not really afraid of change. Because certain things would happen to us where we change and it would be all for the better. Our problem is not about change. Our problem is about losing belonging, losing support, losing feeling of oneness with family and stuff like that. That's our real fear. So what happens though in the end, which is a little sad, is that we lose our access to truth and seeking truth. Because if seeking truth might mean rocking the boat with family, rocking the boat with friends, rocking the boat with community, neighbors, where I'm from, and I don't want to rock the boat, which is rocking my own boat because I need them too. So then I lose my access to truth, to the search for truth. It's pretty high stakes because, I mean, you were put in this world for this search. The point of the world was to find the truth. Of course, a major part of this world is the support that we experience in family and friends. But it's not supposed to take away the search for truth. And if you ask them, uh, would you mind if I searched for truth? <laughs> of course they'd say, of course you should search for truth. Would you be behind me no matter what my findings were as I searched for truth? Of course we'd be behind you no matter what. Great. Then you can pull out your black hat and your long coat. How's this? Oh no, I didn't, I didn't mean that. You know, that's too much. There was a student here at H that once, uh, too much truth or just too much? <laughs> just too much. There's, there's uh, probably too much truth. But uh, there was uh, there was a student here at H who his parents were highly Jewish resistant, and he went back to America. He'd only like he probably would have dressed like this guy here. What's your name again? Lucas. Like Lucas here. You know, a t-shirt, a little keep on. You got sitsis on Lucas? No, he had sitsis already. He, he was dressing like that. Um, but you know what he did? He grew out his beard over the last few weeks, and he grew it, and he cut his hair and left payas, and he put on a barred like an old black hat and put on a long coat, and he showed up in LAX. <laughs> his parents almost had a heart attack. He goes home, and he's, sit, he's sitting at the dining room table like this, you know, you know and he's not eating because the food's not kosher. And his parents are just like, Whoa! You know, like this is our worst. Our worst nightmare would have been better if he were gay. <laughs> and and then he says to them, "Listen, I know I know you're embarrassed by my new look and everything, but I'm willing to cut you a deal. I'll get rid of the hat. I'll get rid of the pants, and I'll get rid of the beard. All I want to do is keep kosher." And keep Shabbos, but you gotta honor that. You know, the parents are like, anything, anything. <laughs> keep kosher, keep Shabbos, it's beautiful, you can pray all day if you want. Just get out of this crazy outfit. You know. He says, well, all right. Anyway, um, the search for truth is uh, unfortunately where got a major, uh, the major obstacle is uh, the people who love us most and we love them most. People we need most are often the obstacle for our search, which is crazy concept. Crazy concept. It's no wonder cults like take you away from your family and stuff. You know, because the family's not going to dig it. If cults were so wonderful for people, then they would say, you know, like, now go, go home for the weekend and share everything we're teaching you to your family. No, they keep you away. I want to keep you away. In Judaism, it's the exact opposite. I spend all my time linking children with fa- boys with fathers, girls with mothers, girls with their fathers, getting everyone back together again, getting families rebuilt. We're the exact opposite. 
but you can understand why the cults are doing that. Because part of growth means growing out of what you've been known for. And this is called, by the way, I should ask Yoni and Eli, uh, what is this called, this whole issue of people uh, knowing us already for in a different way? Yeah. They're in my course. I, I'm doing a course at night. It's the first pitfall. Remember? What's the first pitfall? Even if I change, even if I change, when I get back to my hometown and everyone knows me a different way, what is that called? It's called a consensus. There's a consensus about you. That's what we're talking about. There's a consensus about, like Daniel, there's a consensus of what Daniel's like. His tastes, his moods, his expressions, his lifestyle. That's a consensus about you. And if you want to break it, if you want to break that mold because you're growing in life, good luck. Because everyone already knows you a certain way and they're going to be resistant to that. Because as we explained earlier, earlier classes, they need you to be, remain you for them to be them. Because everyone's relying on each other. Every community, every society, every family is operating according to fictional agreements that are just the style of that family, that community, that neighborhood, whatever. There's these fictional agreements and you have to stick with the agreements. Otherwise you make people uncomfortable. But it's not so much they're uncomfortable about you, they're really uncomfortable about themselves. Because you're, for you not to be what they have known you to be so that they can be who they are, you've now created a vacuum in who they are. Who are they supposed to be if you're not being what's worked for them until now? See, a, a community or a family, let's talk family, a family is like an organism where everyone's very interrelated. You're interdependent, but very related. And when one person in that, in that uh, organism shifts in their being, including their lifestyle especially, the organism doesn't know what to do with itself. And for that reason, as I was saying before, we lose our access to truth. To the search for truth. Because how can you have a search for truth if you're not, if you're not allowed to change at the end? Right? So you're not even going to bother searching because everyone knows if you search for truth and you actually discovered it, things will change for you. But you're not even going to go on a real search for truth if the change that it means is untenable for your family situation or your loved ones. That's why it takes so much courage to search for truth. So much courage. And what we also expressed earlier in the week is that once the family or friends or neighbors or workmates or anything get over your new lifestyle takes them about a year or two except for there are always those people who are just going to shoot themselves in the foot forever over your shift but most people it takes them about a year or two to get over it you know what they know you for now they know you for who you are now and they know you for that level of integrity and truth you like become the instant leader of your family at that point you go from being a member of the family to a leader of the family because of the level of integrity that you live with So you used to be known for just being part of the part of the organism. Now you're known for being the the leader of the organism, and people really appreciate that because integrity issues come up in everyone's lives, in work, relationships. Integrity issues come up. Well, who are they going to go to when they have an integrity issue and they need advice? They're going to go to you. I remember in my own experience, some of the people that gave me the biggest flack for becoming observant came to me years later with serious questions in business saying like, you know how'd you do that? How'd you like keep your integrity? Because I got a serious integrity issue on the line right now where I can gain a lot but I'm going to have to like tell some half truths and I've got a lot to gain by doing that financially but I'm not going to be in my integrity at all you really had integrity back then no matter what anyone thought how'd you do that? And I was able to advise him. 
So I said, I thought you, I thought you're like, you hate me now. For, you know, you treated me like garbage when I became observant. Why is it suddenly you want advice? And he apologizes and I'm sorry. I just, just made me uncomfortable. So people do come around. People do come around. They say the faxes, so when I became observant, the communication was not email, it was faxes. They say the faxes that my father sent when I became observant were of the most vehemently angry, you know, lashing out faxes that they'd ever seen in Ashtar history to date. Today, my, today that same man, my father, he can't stop talking about the nachas he has and how much integrity his son lives with. You can't stop talking about it. Even at my, uh, events of my siblings. <laughs> my mom has to like kick him under the table <laughs> to go back to the sibling whose event this is. Because he just never uh, dreamed that he would have a son who just, you know, straight, you know, do the right thing. But it didn't start like that. So you become, you're still, meaning the organism never truly spits you out. You just become known for something else in the organism, in this case, truth. Which makes you automatically the leader because everyone else is part of this mediocrity conspiracy going around. Okay. This is the battleground between the soul and the body. And guess who loses when you decide, when you want to ignore the fact that you're on a battleground? The soul. The soul loses. The body wins. It's the default mode of human beings. Why? Why does the body win automatically if you want to choose not to battle? Because the body's made of, you know, all of its senses, and this world's a sensory experience. This is what you see. This is what you know. You know, it's basically, you should know, even if you are doing the battle, let's say you agree, I'm on a battleground. This is major stakes here. I'm in a battle. I've got my soul and my body both pulling different ways in this battleground. You have to know that you're, even if you agree you're on a battleground, it's still Godzilla versus Bambi. Anyway, it's Godzilla versus Bambi. Anyone see the film Godzilla vs. Bambi? It's a very short film. Bambi doesn't fare well. You know, the film's about five seconds long. All you see is there's little Bambi and the beautiful music and the pond and the grass. And then you just see a shadow of a foot. And then the movie's over. So, it's Godzilla vs. Bambi because your soul voice is Bambi. And your body voice is Godzilla. Soul voice is very quiet, especially if you're a man. Because soul voice is more feminine. It's harder to hear. So gentle. No ego. Doesn't want to be recognized for anything. It just wants good and wants to give and wants to care and wants to connect and wants to see the world around it as one with it. Soul voice only understands certain language, understands the language of Torah, understands the language of care and kindness, doesn't even understand other stuff. So half the time, your soul can't even understand what in the world you're saying, because it doesn't speak that language. Think about it, your soul does not speak body language. It doesn't even know. So when your body's on a roll, like it's been kind of running your life for a few days, or a few weeks, or a few years, or your whole life, when your body's been running things, your soul has really kind of lost touch. You went into sleep mode. You know, your computer might have a sleep mode. The soul goes into sleep mode because it's just been ignored for so long that it, it already doesn't have a language at all. So forget Godzilla versus Bambi. It's like Godzilla versus Butterfly or something. It's not. It's really not there. But you can pump up the soul voice. So, I mean, it's never going to go. As long as you're alive, it's what keeps you alive. So you can always reinvigorate the soul voice. A little Torah study, do a mitzvah, come to Jerusalem, your soul voice gets a microphone. You know, you guys notice your soul voice has a microphone since you've been here? It's now getting more of a say. Meaning on the pie chart, on a pie chart, your uh, soul voice is probably like, that's your slice of the pie. 
but but he may be still nevertheless the majority shareholder. You know, if you give him a you know give him that that uh, give him a microphone. I don't know how to make a microphone. Okay, you give your soul voice a microphone, boost it up. One of the ways of boosting up the soul voice is spending some time in Jerusalem. Having an authentic Shabbos in Jerusalem boosts the soul voice. Uh, Torah, Hebrew even, just learning Hebrew can boost the soul voice because it understands the language, the 22 holy letters really well. <laughs> your mind might not, your own brain might be having a little trouble with the 22 holy letters and reading Hebrew and understanding it. Your soul understands every word you say. That's why you're allowed to pray in Hebrew even though you don't understand a word you're saying. You shouldn't be able, that shouldn't be halakhically okay because you're not getting anything intellectually. Yet we know that someone fulfills his obligation to pray in Hebrew. It's because your soul's totally getting it. We suggest, obviously, to do the English because how long, you know, after a while you're going to be suffering by not knowing what in the world you're saying. It's probably why other traditions turn to English. Uh, other denominations turn to English just to make it more, you know, valuable the time spent praying. The Jewish law says to fulfill one's obligation to pray, and they can do it in Hebrew without understanding, or they can do it in English with understanding. But you got to have something. Either got meaning the soul will understand the stuff, and the soul will get the Hebrew. So, either you have to do it in Hebrew so the soul gets it, even though your mind won't, or you got to do it in English, but you got to get your mind. If you can't be thinking about your financial stuff going on. You can't start thinking about other things while you're praying in English. When you're praying in Hebrew, you can actually space out, and it still does the trick. But if you're praying in English, you have to pay attention. Otherwise, your soul, again, just doesn't know what's going on. Okay. Can I say something? Sure. Um, my experience is somewhat the opposite. And generally, whether I go to services and read it in Hebrew or go to services and read it in English. I don't understand the English and I have an excuse for not understanding the Hebrew. I mean, I can read the Hebrew, you don't understand but I don't Hebrew. understand it. So I have an excuse for that. Yes. But on the English, I'm not exactly illiterate, but I can't understand the English either. It doesn't make much sense to me. Excellent, and, Cindy. And, uh, so what's the opposite, though? Well, what I'm saying is I think I'm a fairly ethical person. Yeah. Either way. But uh, I don't exactly feel I have to immerse myself, at least at this moment, 110% one way in order to keep me from my body telling me to go out and whatever... <laughs> All day long. Uh -huh. um, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, and I think they're different people are different, but you know, I my point is that the English doesn't mean any more to me than reading it in Hebrew, and it should. No problem. Yeah. No problem. It's an excellent point. So you should know that that we study prayer. It's not like we study Torah and then it's time to pray. We actually study prayer. I've, I'm, I'm now observant for June 24th will be about 18 years. I study prayer. And even the prayers I've already studied and have taught, I'm still learning more. Prayer is something you study. You, you need, I'd, rather, I'd rather, Sandy, see you studying prayer than praying. You understand? It's something you study. It's amazing stuff. I mean, I've, I have studied prayer for years. There's all these books on prayer. All those books on prayer aren't to get you to pray. All those books on prayer are to get your prayers to make sense. No wonder it doesn't make sense. I mean, it really requires study. Every prayer. I mean, you just can't imagine. I have a class called the Anatomy of a Blessing. Six words. Baruch Atah Hashem Elokeinu Melech Those are six words. That class on the anatomy of a blessing takes about two weeks. It's two weeks. It's it's, it's two weeks. What? 
No. It's two weeks of, of, of classes, a whole curriculum on understanding those six words. Why should it take that long? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't take that long to study six words. Yeah. Well, you, you have to understand. You should be able to get a better perspective quicker. I'm not saying a Oh, you get, the, you get a lot of perspective. I could teach you all six words in an hour and give you perspective. I'm just saying that the depth that's in there is much more. Just like if you Google the word cliff diving, yeah, it's going to give you lots of stuff there. It's going to be, and it'll say like 700,000, you know, this is the first 10 out of like 700,000 whatever, you know, matches. So, so too the word Baruch. When you click on the word Baruch, but how many of us go into 700,000 matches? We usually click on the first three or four, right? So you can definitely get perspective by clicking on the first three or four. But someone who's really researching, maybe for a university thesis, probably going to click more than on the first three or four. So you don't have to do the intense, in-depth route. All I'm, uh, the reason I mentioned that was just that uh, you should appreciate no, that you would appreciate the depth and beauty. Um, certainly, the slower route's fine. Now, the other thing is, as far as you'd mentioned that you're an ethical person, you feel you're an ethical, per- pretty ethical. That was your words, pretty, pretty ethical person, <laughs> and you don't need all this to. You don't need to immerse yourself in Torah and, and prayer to keep your body from running out of control with you, right? Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. The I wasn't. Dis- I you're you're bringing up a separate subject that I was not discussing. I was discussing that the soul's language is prayer and study and mitzvahs. And stuff. It's the prayers of giving, chesed. That's the per- soul's language. I wasn't saying that that without it you're going to be an animal. That wasn't what I was saying. I was just saying, oh, I guess you could see how I was saying that because if, if the soul's gone into sleep mode, the body's running the show. Okay. But the, the, when I say the body's running the show, I don't mean entirely. I mean, you still have your moral covenant with yourself. Every human being, whether it's Sandy or Lucas or John or Yoni over there, every human being has their bottom line where they don't go. But that's your soul telling you don't go there. Everyone has that bottom line of where we say, you know, I don't do that. That's that's our, you know, that's our covenant with ourselves, and we breach it sometimes. We make mistakes and breach our own covenant, make moral mistakes with our own selves, our own covenant with ourselves. And when we do that, then we deal with it. Then, and we spoke about it yesterday. How we deal with it usually with alcohol, <laughs> or drugs, or going shopping, or you know some other way of dealing with the guilt Uh, but Judaism says just own it own that you did it say you're sorry to God and move on don't don't get involved in all kinds of other behavior just because you made a mistake okay so that's the battleground between the soul and the the body and uh, I just want to mention though just I don't know why I mentioned this. Hopefully, I'm not going to be sorry I did. But uh, sometimes you meet people who say, I'm, "I'm not observant, but I'm a good guy." I'm not observant, but I'm a good guy. You get people say that. So I think a more accurate way of saying it is, "I'm not as observant, but I'm good to people. I'm not hurting anybody." I think that's a better way to say it. Because from a creator perspective, where a creator created you, part of being good would be like connecting back. Part of being good would be avoiding things that the that you know the creator wouldn't be happy about. So giving a blanket statement of being a good guy would have to include who you know connecting and avoiding that which your maker doesn't want you to do you understand that's part of being good it's not enough to be good with people so rather than saying 
I'm not observant, but I'm a good guy, I'd rather hear you say, I'm not observant, but I'm very good with people. But I personally would rather see you step on more toes and worry more about Shabbos and Kashras. You understand? If you're so interested in being a good person, you know, I'm glad you do not steal. I'm glad you don't lie. And I'm glad you don't cheat. But you've been, you've been, I didn't create you. You know, Barbara, that you don't like hurt me and, you know, throw your glasses at me or your water bottle or, or lie to me about who you are or something. I appreciate that you don't do that. But I'd rather you lie to me. You understand? I'd rather you throw your bottle at me than be throwing it at Hashem who created me because I didn't create you it's very nice you're being nice to me and being truthful and honest and and uh, dignified and, and with and you you relate to me with integrity I appreciate that but I didn't make you God did so part of being good has to include God yeah and I'm looking at the battleground and I look at the battle in body to body I mean we're talking about soul you know and body but most of the battles that we're fighting every single day and we're making excuses for are body to body it's like I'm not successful because my dad was mean to me or I'm not happy because my dad beat me up or didn't buy me anything or my, my father was an alcoholic my mother was this so we're making excuses all the time and having battles that's body to body I don't know that we ever get I mean when we get to the soul it's very most of us you have a hard time relating to that because we're already fighting our body all the time. Well, I mean, every look, every person that's every excuse they ever heard about anybody about anything, and people make excuses all the time right. about why their life is the way it is. Right, right, and right. It's always not great, but it's a battle. It's an excuse. So I think once we can get rid of all these excuses, body to body, then we can say, okay, now let's figure out the soul. Okay, I accept that. I accept that. I think I think we need, or maybe say, there's two battlegrounds that we're fighting on. And uh, you want to see how we mix God in with our with our body to body? I mean, he's saying we all have a background that we can easily point to for the why why we are the way we are today. So, how do we bring God into that? Is that God created you new today. Right? Daniel, you're brand new today. This is the first time this day has ever occurred for you. Did did God come to you with a little voice this morning and say, can I remind you of all your problems based on your background? (laughs) He didn't say that. In fact, the prayers we say in the morning, we say that we are brand new. God's creating the world new. Did your mom call you and say, can I remind you of all your problems? No one's doing that. We're doing it. We're doing it. So So part of being into God means giving yourself a new start every day. And we do that with the mikvah. The men in my community go to the mikvah every morning. I spend my day completely nude with all my neighbors every morning. And we go in that water and we just burn off anything else. You know, we treat it like sulfuric acid. Just go in there and just burn off the past and start your day. Just start your day. Today I forgot to do that. I'm on my way back up the stairs. I said, you know what? Go back in the water. Went back in there and just said, all there is is God and Let's get started with a brand new day. What? Starting over, sulfuric acid burning off the the our, all our past excuses for who we are, and redefining ourselves. Because the mikvah is the uh, womb. The mikvah is the womb. Mikvah is a rebirthing. Born again Jews. Okay, and you go in that water. Not only that, I mean, it's literally a born again because because you're you can't live underwater. So when you're under the water, you think, wait a second, if I stayed under, I'd be gone. Of course, your instinct will pull you out, but but imagine, you know, you didn't come out. Within two minutes, you're gone. So since I'm coming out, what am I coming out for? I know I'm going to come out of this water. What for? Why bother? I know what the day looks like based on my past. I know what this day is going to be like. Do you? Oh, yeah. You haven't noticed your life's a rerun yet, Scott? 
because you're saying you're coming out of the victim. Meaning I know what it would be like. Yes, but the question is, what do I want it to be like? And I want it to be a brand new world, which it is. And of course, my habitual ways of being are going to chime in. They're going to chime in. And I just say, you know what? That's not who I am. <laughs> um, there's no prayers in the mikvah per se, but when you're under the water, um, then you can, I mean, it's a little hard to pray under the water, but they, when you're under the water, you have um, holy thoughts. Thoughts of going back to zero. Thoughts of starting again. Thoughts of uh, connecting with God. I mean, there's all kinds of cool stuff to think of under the water. It's a mini death. And uh, it's also, uh, like, one cool one I like is that the water's, you got to be surrounded completely. So you're surrounded completely by this substance. And your body's also made of 70% water. And so you're really just a bunch of water. It's just a bunch of water and water. And, and the idea is that the creator is outside of space and time, but he's also filling space and time. So you are surrounded by the water representing God outside space and time. But yet you yourself are filled with 70% water anyway. So filling space and time. The water is really both outside and in. God's inside me. I'm part of God, so to speak. Whatever, there's all kinds of this massive amounts. I have class on Mikvah. Number four is the soul. Are you completely covered up? In the water? In the water? Sure. No, no, you got to be completely immersed. You can't have any tight-fitting anything on you. If you're wearing a ring, you got to remove it. Anything that would prevent water from touching any part of the body. How long do you remove Submerge? (laughs) Depends what I'm doing. Sometimes I'm going for numbers, like seven before Shabbos I do in honor of the seventh day. So Fridays I do seven, so I'm not going to be immersed. I'm just going up and down. Uh, usually the seventh one I go under for a while and think about Shabbos, going into Shabbos. How I want to treat my kids, how I want to treat my wife, and what kind of kiddish I'm going to make. And so sometimes I'm under quite some time. It doesn't matter. And the amount doesn't matter too because once you've been under once, you did it. You've purified your body for... Okay. Number four is the soul. The soul, you should know, by the way, Dan, we have three pools. In Israel, you have three pools in the mikvah. I know in America, I don't know why, America seems to have a lot more money than Israel, but in America, it's generally one pool. In Israel, no matter how poor a community you're in, there's three pools in there, and no one would expect anything else, and no one would ever come if there wasn't. The pools are ice cold, 105 degrees, which is about the legal jacuzzi. Jacuzzi, I think, is 104. So it's probably 104 or something. And then uh, 118. No meaning of the temperature. But when you come out of that 118, man, you've seen God. If you come out of there, you just fly into Shabbos from the 118. And you got to go into cold after that or you'll fall asleep like an hour later. You, you can't start your day with the 118. you got to get in the cold. And but the 118s that why they did it wasn't for me to space out. It's probably for like these old leathered men who like you know these old leathered men feel they probably feel the 118s like 104. You know? <laughs> and if it's like 115, the old men get in there. You can see them going like. <laughs> you know what it is? You probably you probably most people have never been in a body of water that's 118. Like the Japanese. They do that. Oh, it's. I mean, this is Jew soup. Jew soup. Um, bar mitzvah, they start going daily. And the, uh, it all depends on the community. In our community, they go from bar mitzvah. Some people only go on Fridays, but everyone goes on Fridays. Hasidim and Spartan go daily. And your shalmis, people who are uh, native of Jerusalem, go daily. A time, no time necessary, but we start our day that way. Um, kids go, you go with all your kids on Fridays. And it's a great bonding experience to, for the kids to come in to, you know, be with the, also amazingly is the kids are very natural with their bodies because they've been raised to be completely naked with their whole community 
every Friday their whole upbringing. Once they're old enough to, you know, once they're out of diapers, they're already in the mix on on Fridays. They're so natural with their bodies. They have no, there's no taboo with their with their bodies. They're in diapers till they're thirteen. Uh, they're in diapers till they're two, probably. But I, my kids, I mean, once they're potty trained, I, I bring them in the mikvah. Yeah, I don't want. They can stand for a sec. We're almost finished. Okay, number four is the soul. Number four is the soul, and that is that in the battle, in the battle, guys, in the battle, we're choosing. You want to choose the soul. In the battle between body and soul, you want to choose the soul. Now, how you doing, Paul? Now, when you choose the soul, what do you think that means to choose the soul? Do you think that means like take a shotgun and blow away your body, boys? Not at all. Okay, you're not you're not here to to destroy your body. Your body wants to eat. Well, that's a mitzvah because it's going to keep your body around. If you don't have a body that's been nourished, your soul is going to go out. That's called death. Death is when the soul leaves the body. So when the body voice says, I want to eat, the soul voice says, can you, you mind if we just wait till one? Can I learn Torah till one, please? Okay. You promise you'll give me something to eat at one? Yes. Okay. I'll stay. Meaning your soul negotiates with the body. Your body says, I want to eat. Your soul says, do you mind if it's kosher? Can I just have kosher food, please? All right, as long as you feed me. You know, your body wants sexuality. Soul says, "Do you mind if it's with my spouse?" Well, all right. I suppose. You know, stop pushing me around so much. Okay, but the, but you understand the. You don't have to kill. You're not supposed to kill the body. You know that's Eastern religions. Okay, in Judaism, you're just supposed to temper the body with with the instructions of the Torah. And by the way, if there was no Torah. We'd be up in the Himalayas. We'd all be fasting and celibate. Because who would want to lose their connection to God? I don't want to lose my connection to God. And I know my body will lose, I'll lose it real quick with my body running the show. Thank God we have instructions. The word Torah means instruction. We have instructions for what the soul tells the body. When your soul says to the body, okay, you can eat, but can it be kosher, please? Okay, you can have sexual relations, but can it be with a spouse, please? Meaning your spouse. Can I wait? Can you wait a little till you're married? You know? So the, that's all coming from the instructions of the Torah. So if it wasn't for the Torah, we'd all be fasting and celibate having already renounced our possessions. Because the body says, can I have a home? And can I have a nice car? Can I have a bed that's comfortable? The soul says, fine. But don't steal the money. You know, can you mind working honestly for the money? All right, okay. I suppose I could be honest about that. You know, you understand the body isn't, the body, okay, sometimes it asks for something forbidden, but this is a, usually, almost, I'd say always a kosher alternative, that your body will actually quiet down. So that's the idea, is you have to be a good negotiator to get to the soul. Getting to the soul isn't like an Easterner who just takes a shotgun out and shoots the body. Getting to the soul means being a good diplomat. You gotta deal with your body in a way that's gonna work for the body so it doesn't rebel and work for the soul so your soul doesn't feel like it's going into sleep mode. You have to have good discussions. I've named my body, my body has a name by the way, it's Johnny. It's my kid name, I grew up with the name Johnny. It's Johnny. Rabbi, please, I am so sorry. We, we, uh, We've been trying so hard to finish this class. It's been three days now. Three days we're trying to finish this class. I don't know what to say. I do want to say one thing, though. Rabbi Pliskin, um, have you ever been on the videos TorahAnyTime.com? TorahAnyTime.com. What? Would you be willing to be? It's free online videos of Torah classes. Would you be willing to be in one? Like, to, to give a class over on video? No, because this is the camera. If you agree, we'll just leave it set up. Not today's class. Not today's class. <laughs> Let me just finish and we're done. Okay? The um, the soul... That's the point. you got to negotiate to get to the soul. Don't kill the body. Don't let the body kill you either. The point is to get to the soul. 
but you're going to have to work it out with the body. Give your body a name. Mine's Johnny. Johnny likes to go mountain biking. I was actually right behind your place uh, yesterday. Yesterday, Johnny wanted to go riding. Okay, Johnny, but do you mind if I learn a little Torah first? All right, as long as you take me riding. So I learned some Torah and I went riding. Okay? Last, fifth way of mastering free will is, uh, is God. Okay, you can be a masterful in all these things, become a great businessman, you know, constantly monitoring your business, reevaluating things, maybe you should be importing. You know, the battleground is should I go drink beer with the guys in the sports bar or should I actually make those calls to China? You know, um, choosing to make the calls to China but promising yourself an extra beer. You know, so you can use these four, but you might be in totally, you might be in left field. You might be totally out of the ball game because you didn't realize you're actually inside the mind of God. So the fifth one's really Kabbalistic. It's, a, it's Kabbalistic. You're really inside the mind of God. So choosing that, choosing to, to be cognizant of the fact that God really is one, not that there's one of them, but that he is one. And this is all of God, is the ultimate level of free will. You're a master of free will if you're walking with God. So you can walk down the street in a way that you're like going to do something that's mindful of the body and the soul battle. You're mindful of your battle. You've reevaluated whether you really want to be doing this for a living. Let's say you're going to work. You know, as you're walking your way to work, you've done all those steps. But for heaven's sakes, remember while you're walking to work that you're inside the matrix here, which is inside God's mind. This is a godly experience now. It's part of constant a little bit. When you're at work, realize the people that you're working with are godly people. Your spouse is God in the form of a spouse. Your children are God in the form of children. Fit children. You can't hit them or abuse them. They are God in the form of children. Your home is a gift of God. You're inside the mind of God always. You've never been outside the mind of God. Like the Truman Show. Your whole life's going on inside something. It's going on inside of God. And that's the fifth level. So that's it. Five ways of mastering free will. Constant reevaluation, battleground, soul, and God. Um, if you want to give this over to two people, I'd appreciate that. It's very simple to give over. You can give it over much easier than I did. Send it even in an email. Constant reevaluation, battleground, soul, God. Anyone want to take on and give this over to two people? Yeah, sure, sure. Okay, two people have you committed by when? Sunday? Uh, Monday. Put it in tonight. <laughs> okay, by Monday. You send in an email. Anything. By the way, you're going to have to you'll have a breakthrough because on the, the reevaluation, remember we don't want to rock the boat with people? Yeah. <laughs> you're going to have to automatically rock the boat a bit by saying, can I give over some wisdom that I learned? Always use the word wisdom instead of Torah, by the way. When you're reaching out to someone, don't call it Torah. Call it wisdom. I want to share some wisdom. I'd like to give, give over a little piece of wisdom today. At, this, at the dining room table. And call to our wisdom. It works a lot better for people. Okay, shalom everyone. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.